and your plumbing and your electrics and, and everything, and then taking it and putting it into like a corrosive, damp saltwater environment, and then like shaking it around, and then being like hundreds or thousands of miles away from Home Depot where, you know, you, you really can't fix anything. Hey folks, hope you're doing well. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today is an episode from a few years ago, but I, I did want to say you probably noticed the show's up a day later than usual. I wasn't able to get to it yesterday, so uh, it's going to be today. So happy Friday. Maybe a little something to, to listen to on the ride home or the ride to work today. So this one goes back a couple years. We're talking to the SV Delos crew, Brian Troutman, about living aboard a sailboat for literally over a decade. And now uh, he has a family, and I'd love to do an updated episode with him soon because this is one of our most popular episodes ever. And so I, I thought it'd be cool to feature again, just something to get you inspired to start off the new year in a world of uh, a world that you might not be super familiar with. And if you really want to get more into their story, definitely follow them on YouTube because that's that's really what they're known for. They have a very popular YouTube channel all the links for that in the show notes. And uh, funny enough, I'm getting ready to go sailing here soon. So I'm pretty excited to give this one a listen. And uh, you never know, maybe I'll be recording this one day from a sailboat. So we'll see. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Things. I, I don't know anything about the world of sailboats, despite glo- growing up on the ocean in Florida. I'm not too experienced. I would love to get into that, but also just kind of the backstory of you know how all this got started. I know you've told the story probably a thousand times, but if you don't mind, we would love to hear, how did you end up living life on a boat? Oh, well, I was pretty much, I guess you would say, living the American dream or what I thought was the American dream. You know, I, I grew up in Arizona, landlocked, and uh, I worked for the phone company. So I was like the guy that would climb the telephone poles out in the middle of the desert and uh, run the lines. I was, I was basically a lineman. And I really felt uh, a pull towards the water, towards the mountains and the trees. So I moved up to Seattle sort of on a whim on like a month long road trip. And I went to the University of Washington up there, graduated with my electrical engineering degree and immediately got a job working uh, right out of school at Microsoft. Uh, had, you know, the whole benefit package. And then one day my, my boss took me into his office and, you know, it's kind of an interesting environment at Microsoft where you have like these one-on-one meetings with your managers and, you know, it's like dimly lit lighting and there's like a little bar in the corner because, you know, everything's trying to be cool. And he sits me down and closes his door and he says, you know, Brian, one day my goal is to be a node on this chart. And he points at the organization chart and the top of it starts at Bill Gates and there's, you know, hundreds if not thousands of nodes until it finally ends at some management level. And I was thinking like, man, you know, that is so far away from any goal that I could ever, ever want that, you know, I, I pretty much decided after two years that that was not the place for me. So I, I put in my notice at work. 
me and the other people on my team were also feeling sort of disenchanted. So we left and we started our own software consulting company selling services back to Microsoft, which was kind of funny. Uh, mm -hmm. Did that for a number of years, had like, you know, house, car, was able to take holidays, but just felt myself looking towards the future and thinking like, hey, you know, is, is this what will make me happy for the next 20 to 30 years, a TV in, in every room, and eventually, you know, getting to a bigger house, buying a new car. Uh, and I had always felt like an urge to travel. And I wanted to travel for a long time. I didn't want to go travel for like a few weeks or a few months. I really wanted to take like two years off go see a bit of the world. And I had always been like kind of into the sailing scene. So I had a small sailboat. It was something that you could sail around on like the lakes of Lake Washington and the Puget Sound, like protected waterways. But once I, I finally got this idea in my head and this concept that you could go and you could travel the world in the comfort of your own home, and like bring your own toys and you know your pillow and your blanket and your bed and basically move your house from place to place i just fell in love with the concept and so once i made that sort of turning point and got over the the fact that you know it's going to cost a lot of money i'm going to potentially get out of the housing ladder market i'm going to sell everything i own buy a sailboat take my savings and go travel for like you know, the idea was to go for 18 to 24 months. I was just enamored by the idea of doing this. Uh, and I kind of said, well, come hell or high water, we're going to make this work. Uh, bought the boat with the intention of going for eh, 18 to 24 months. And, and now it's been, uh, well, it's 11 years now. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's been quite a trip. <laughs> no kidding. And, and so with that 18 to 24 months, I imagine you had kind of mapped out what you wanted to do. How, how did that first part go? And when did you along that journey decide I could do this longer? Well, the, the original plan was, you know, to, to leave Seattle, go out the Puget Sound, and then instead of making a right turn to head up to the Canadian Gulf Islands, you'd make a left turn, sail down to California, uh, sail to Mexico, and then the end goal was to get to New Zealand, because I just heard of this, you know, amazing, rugged, cool land that's on the other side of the world, uh, and to try and sail there across the Pacific Ocean is actually a pretty big feat. And um, my brother, who still sails with me, he joined uh, me in Mexico, and we set off across the Pacific. It took us about uh, 10 months, uh, island hopping through French Polynesia, through the Cook Islands, um, Tonga, and then finally we got to New Zealand to escape the, the cyclone season, which is the southern hemisphere version of the hurricane season. And we were kind of out of money at that point. You know, we'd been sailing for a while. We'd spent a bit of our savings. Uh, I found out that you could make money doing odd jobs in like the boating world. So I, I was like a day worker doing electrical and engineering work on some of the, the super yachts in Auckland because it's a, a super yacht base. And we put together uh, enough money to go sail for another season. So then, you know, we're like 14 or 15 months into this trip. We make another few thousand dollars. We decide to sail to Australia. 
So we went back to the South Pacific, like sailed up through the islands of Vanuatu or Fiji, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and then got to Australia. And by that time, we were basically like living off of my visa card. And so, you know, it was like we we had to park the boat. We put her in storage on land in a boatyard. Uh, we moved down to a little uh, town, actually a pretty big town by the name of Melbourne uh, in Victoria, Australia. And uh, we got normal jobs. We got an apartment. I started doing uh, computer consulting work back for the company that uh, I used to work for in the U.S. And we did that for like another year uh, to make enough money to go sailing for the next season. So we were, we were kind of in the cycle of like, let's sail until we run out of money. Let's stop. Let's make money. Let's sail again. And it was just all about exploring and adventure uh, and sailing as much as possible. And uh, along that time, you know, we were writing a blog and we had written like 300 and something blogs with, you know, pictures and text. And, you know, they were being followed by like our mom and our dad and our brothers and, you know, like some of our family and a few other sailing friends. And then we met this guy and he said, hey, Brian, uh, his name was Ken. He was on another sailboat called Trim. And he said, hey, Brian, you know, why don't you guys, instead of writing a blog, why don't you make videos about your lifestyle and just post them on YouTube or something? And I said, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting concept. I know nothing about that. So we sort of bought this little camcorder and uh, looked up, like, how do I edit a video on YouTube? And we sort of just went at it. And within... Uh, a few months of putting up our first videos, I started getting like these subscription emails from YouTube. And I was like, well, you know, who, who in the hell is this person? Like, why are they actually subscribing or watching our videos? And I began to see the, the potential that if, if we would produce a series of videos about living life at sea and sailing around the world, that other people would maybe want to watch it for, you know, voyeuristic content or escapism or maybe they're into sailing or adventure or whatever uh and we pretty much just sort of grew the the concept from there it, it seemed like a real you know steady growth and without a ton of expectation up front can i go back to when you first left seattle uh, how much did you know about sailing when you decided to go across the freaking Pacific Ocean to New Zealand? Or did you, would you say, I mean, were you nervous about that? How did you feel? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a terrifying yet, like the ocean, I don't think the ocean is scary now. But at that time, I knew so little about navigating your own boat on an ocean all the things that you can do wrong with navigation, potentially running into storms. Uh, it was a nerve wracking experience. And what I actually did is I took a couple of guys that knew a whole lot more about sailing than me for the first trip. So, you know, I knew that like, if we can just make it to San Francisco, then, you know, that'll be like the shakedown cruise. We'll be able to figure out a few things. And, you know, we, we left Seattle with, all these expectations and all these horror stories, basically, of people getting hit by storms off the coast of the Pacific Northwest. And and it was like a mill pond out there. Like for, you know, six days, we had five to six knots of wind, which is not even hardly enough to sail in. We ended up running the motor the whole time to get to San Francisco. And so the first trip was actually like really anti 
climactic. It, it really wasn't until we got down into Mexico that, you know, we got pretty scared um, by some of the conditions that we saw. Wow. And, and if I'm not wrong, I, I believe your boat's 53 feet long. Yeah, she's a, a 53 foot long catch, um, basically specifically meant for the purpose of crossing oceans. She's an ocean crossing machine. Uh, catch means there's two masts. She has three cabins, two bathrooms, although we call them heads, two showers, uh, you know, two flushing toilets. Uh, we have a full galley or kitchen with, you know, wow, we have a dishwasher even. We have a clothes machine. We we can, we have a stove. Uh, we can cook our own food. We have fridges, freezers. So it's, it's basically like everything that you would have in a tiny home, but in a boat and in an extremely hostile environment. Uh, extremely hostile. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the salt, imagine taking your house and your plumbing and your electrics and, and everything, and then taking it and putting it into like a corrosive, damp saltwater environment, and then like shaking it around, and then being like hundreds or thousands of miles away from Home Depot where, you know, you, you really can't fix anything. And uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, MacGyver things that you have to sort of pull together. I've, I've learned to become a, a diesel mechanic and a plumber. Um, and uh, a woodworking specialist and a fiberglass repairman and do my own sewing. We repair our own sails, everything, even refrigeration. You know, it's like you pretty much, if it breaks, you have to fix it yourself because there's nobody going to come and help you out. So, it, you know, it requires, that seems like more of a mindset of, you know, hey, it, we, we can figure it out. We're out here. We can figure it out, dude. I do a lot of bike touring, and if I need something fixed, sometimes I find something on the road to help me fix something. You don't have that ability. You know, you're out in the ocean. You're on this medium that isn't uh, doesn't have the same obviously stability as land, and also the same opportunities as you know. If you're thirsty and you're in the desert, and you see a bottle of water on the side of the road. In a pinch, you could use that. You don't. You don't have that. Yeah, we we literally only have what we carry along with us. So there's there's a lot of baling wire and duct tape and uh, super glue uh, repairs going on until you can get to port and and get. But you know you learn over time. I've learned what breaks, and we carry now spares of crucial pumps and parts that we need. And uh, you know we're we're set up to be self sufficient for you know three to six months. We can we can head to sea. We make our own water. Um, we carry a lot of staples like salt and flour uh, to make our own bread, sugar. Uh, we actually even make our own moonshine on the boat. We have a, a, a still, so we can make like 96% uh, pretty much like Everclear, except it, it tastes a lot better. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a cool life. It's a trip, and uh, I think we all enjoy it a lot. Uh, well, I have to say, I, I did some research on you before, and it... it looks pretty amazing it, it, it does it feel that amazing still or, or is it a facade i mean do people ask that quite a bit ah uh, you know people do like how long would you sail and and basically you know my answer is always like until it stops being fun or we run out of money and because now we're well, it's still a hell of a lot of fun because you can always find different ways to challenge yourself you know you can always sail 
to a different spot. If you're tired of sandy beaches, then you can head north or south and you can get more into the high latitude, cold weather sailing. Um, and, and now that we're able to uh, fund our sailing with the project via crowdfunding and via the YouTube channel and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff, then it's sort of become this self-sustainable voyage. I was going to ask you that. How has social media, YouTube, Patreon, all that, how has that just changed what you do? Well, uh, it's the only thing that really makes it possible for us. Um, you know, we, we used to stop and work, as I said, and, and what, it took about three years of making the videos before it became self-sustainable. But I saw you, you also had a, an account on Patreon. Uh, and that was really the the deal break or the you know the the deal maker for us is when people when we got our videos to a high enough quality that people would actually watch them in lieu of like standard cable TV or something like that. They said, hey, you know, I'll pitch you five bucks, I'll pitch you ten bucks if you if you can keep keep making these videos because they get something out of it. They learn, they get entertained, maybe they learn about a potentially different way of life or a different culture because, you know, we're, we've traveled to like 45 different countries and, and six different continents at this point. So we always try and get real deep into the local scene, show how different people on these islands or countries live, whether they speak English or not, we do our best to, to communicate with them. And I think that sort of voyeuristic thing for people is is what draws them to to sort of the adventure if that makes sense absolutely and, and if i'm not mistaken you you also need crew members from time to time and i feel like people can um you know be a part of the experience that way too yeah yeah we've actually had like uh well we normally sail with four people on the boat so there's myself uh my wife karen my brother Brady and his girlfriend. And then if we meet interesting characters along the way, uh, we'll have them join us for, you know, anywhere from a week to months. Uh, from time to time, we do these competitions. Like we did one in South Africa where we said, uh, you know, we're going to put up a video uh, on YouTube and we're going to call it like, I want to be a Delos pirate. And we're going to have people send in like a short two minute video about why they would be the best pirate on the boat. And we're going to pick people from the video submissions. And then we're going to take them sailing across an ocean. And we had, I think it was like 450 people enter in the first few days making <laughs> videos. Uh, and it was amazing. And we got people from all over the world, people from Argentina, people from Brazil, people from South Africa, uh, people from the US, from Europe. Uh, and instead of picking one, I think we actually ended up picking like eight different people. <laughs> we had uh, our first crew, we decided since we were leaving South Africa, we would only take South Africans. So we had like a 22-year-old South African girl from Durban join us and then a couple of uh, uh, younger South African guys as well from Cape Town. And then we, we set off sailing through the Southern Ocean to uh, a French island. Uh, and then we had a, a, an American couple join us. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I love showing people like the, the passion 
in sailing and just seeing the way that they come alive the first time when they understand a little bit about how you can cross an ocean by the power of the wind with no noise and without any fossil fuels and anything like that. That is, it's really extraordinary and it, it brings a lot of joy to us to, to be able to share the lifestyle with other people, I think for sure. Yeah, that it, it's completely foreign to me. And I just can't imagine going from what I know now to having the confidence to cross an ocean. I know it's possible. Don't get me wrong. Like I know I could learn, but just that jump is just what, what an experience, what a thrill. I can imagine seeing it on their face for the first time. Like we're doing this, (laughs) we're doing this. This is incredible. Coolest thing I've ever done. Exactly. And it's, it's sort of one of those things that, uh, you know, I find that sometimes in life, the things that are really worthwhile, uh, that are the most challenging, that put that sort of pit in, you know, you feel like the bottom of your stomach is about falling out, that those are the things that, that are really worth taking a chance on because you'll probably end up with some sort of an extraordinary experience. And that's still how we feel every time, even after we've done, you know, 85 or 80,000 miles of sailing around the world, which is the equivalent of three times around the earth at the equator. And still to this day, every time we set out, I still get that little feeling like in the pit of my stomach. It's like, okay, we're setting off into the ocean. What's it going to be like? What's going to happen what could go wrong, what could go right. And then you just, once you get out there, then everything calms down. Maybe it's like the same as you about to undertake, like, you know, you do uh, quite a bit of racing on bikes, right? Or you, I, th- I know you just like inter- long distance trips, um, travel, bike travel, essentially. So yeah, imagine like the, all the, the buildup and the anticipation, the preparation for this long trip. But once you get out there, you realize, oh, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. And we find that quite often. Yeah. I can imagine. And now with the sailboat, you, you do need, um, like you said, you need a crew. What does the crew do? Like what, what what's kind of the tasks, why you need four people usually? Uh, mainly so that we can manage our sleep cycles, you know, because when we're sailing on the ocean, we were, there's no place to stop. There's no place to anchor. And so you're literally moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week until you get to your destination. And so if you need to run shifts around the clock, 24 hours a day, if you have two people, we typically do like three hours on, three hours off, right? So you are awake on watch for three hours, then you go sleep for three hours, and the next person comes on for three hours. If you move up to three people, then now all of a sudden you get six hours off, right? If you have four people, then you get nine hours off. And so, you know, with a crew of four people, you can do a watch for three hours. You can have nine hours off, which gives you time to rest and sleep and also like eat and bathe and take care of yourself and just relax and and read a book or watch a movie or whatever you want to do. So, you know, the boat is set up to where it can be handled by even one person could handle that boat. Uh, if you knew what you were doing, that's not a problem. It's, it's more for the sleep. And, and of course, if something goes wrong, you know, if, if you lose part of the rigging or if you have some sort of emergency where there's water coming into the boat and you need somebody to, you know, pump or bail water while you're trying to find, you know, what the problem is, then having a few more people definitely helps for sure. What are they watching for? Like, what are some... 
Let me ask you this. I'll, I'll start the question over. What are some of the biggest dangers with sailing? What, like kind of always on your mind that you're always watching out for? Uh, really depends on where you are. If you're close to mm-hmm. land or an island or a reef or shallow water, the biggest danger is hitting the ground, which you try to avoid at all costs. Uh, but the charts are pretty good. Uh, you usually are aware of where you are and how deep the water is and all that. So that's really not so much of an issue. When you're at sea, uh, you would think that the biggest danger would be storms and wind and waves, but it's actually uh, other boats. And so mm. when, you know, if especially if you're in a, uh, a shipping lane going between, you know, two continents, the big tankers and the freighters, there's actually a, a non-visible highway that they follow. And there can be a boat every few minutes, you know, taking goods from here to there. And so when we're on watch, we, uh, every 15 minutes, we check the state of the boat. We check the sails. We check the wind. To, we check the barometer to see if the weather's changing. Uh, we scan the horizon. We look for uh, other boats that might potentially be out there. If it's at night, we check the radar. Uh, to make sure that there's nobody in front of us or behind us or coming up from the side. Uh, There's also a system called AIS, which stands for Automatic Identification System. Uh, And most of the big boats and nearly all of the well-maintained sailing boats now have this, and it's a a transponder, just like you would see on an airplane. And you basically get a screen that looks almost like an air traffic control screen, and it says, you know, so-and-so tanker is... 27 miles away, he's going 18 knots, and his course is this. Your closest point of contact will be, you know, three nautical miles on the current heading. And so you sort of just watch the screen and you make sure that you're not going to come in closer than, you know, one or two nautical miles from any other boat just to give yourself some distance. Because a lot of these big boats are going, you know, two to three times as fast as we are as a sailboat. So that's, that's mainly it. You know, you, you, do the the checks for other boats, the horizon scans. If the boat is sailing well and on trim, then the rest of the time you're literally kicking back and staring at the ocean, reading, listening to music, chatting, eating, snacking. A lot of a lot of two minute noodles involved, you know. <laughs> Fly away. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine the 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 sky at night out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's really unreal to be able to see the night sky with uh, zero light pollution you know because at night we have uh, either well we have our running lights on but it's at the top of the mast uh, and for the instruments and things they're all very low light and red and so your your pupils and your eyes they just adjust to this grandeur of a night sky and you can see the milky way just like somebody literally painted it on your ceiling um and then there's also the aspect that there's no noises like you might normally have. You know, there's no cars, there's no engines, there's no neighbor next door chatting or music from anybody else. It's just you and the sound of the wind and the sound of the waves. And I find it to be like a very uh, almost meditative experience. You know, you, you can literally sit there and, and just zone out for hours you know, at some point you get tired of listening to music, you get tired of listening, of reading books, and you just stare 
you just watch like the waves roll by and you just watch the clouds come over the horizon and to see a cloud like start at the horizon and then you know end up above you like an hour later is it's it's a surreal experience you know absolutely and i you know we talked to a lot of people who are in isolated places on land but you know, I, I didn't even think about the silence of the sailboat, you know, not, no engines running. Uh, yeah, nothing. You are, you, you want to talk about isolated and yeah, we, 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 you know, we, we get excited over, you know, very little light pollution, maybe in Northern Nevada, Nevada or Southern Utah, but it's nothing compared to, compared to the places you go out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> that is, that is true isolation. Yeah. I think the, you know, in the Pacific ocean at one point, we were uh, approximately 1,600 miles from any piece of land in any direction. So that's what, that's greater than halfway across the U.S. if you were to drive, I think, right? 1,600 nautical miles. Yeah. So that's 1,800 normal car miles. Um, and, you know, in fact, when we were sailing in the Indian Ocean, uh, at one point we had uh, Antarctica to our south, we had Australia to our east, India to our north, and the continent of Africa to our west. And we were like right smack in the middle, you know, thousands of miles from anywhere. And it's just this wicked, unruly place. And it's just you and your boat. And man, you better like the people you're sailing with. I, I tell you that much. <laughs> no kidding. I, I mean, is that hard to manage the, the emotions, the, the tight space uh, in the middle of nowhere? You know, we've never had any real problems. I've heard some horror stories from people, but we sort of run the boat like you would, I don't want to say like military like, but there's definitely a, a strict regimen. You know, there's a schedule for everything. Uh, there's a schedule for when you're supposed to be on watch. There's a schedule for when it's your day to cook. There's a schedule for when it's your day to clean. Then there's no if, ands, or buts about it. You know, if you don't do your job, then it's going to seriously affect not only yourself, but everybody else on the crew. And so we've actually had pretty good luck with just setting up a, a system of where everybody knows their expectations ahead of time knows their job and knows how to do it well. And then they just have to execute. And of course, you know, everybody can fill in if you're not feeling well, like people do get seasick. They do go down for a couple of days and, and not be able to do their jobs. And so then we say, okay, you know, we're going to take their watch and we're going to help fill them in and, and uh, f take over the job for them. So that does happen. But um, yeah, you know, we've, we've never had anybody freak out. Uh, although one of the things that the, you know, before we left in Seattle, the, we visited a Marine doctor and uh, to get a medical kit because, you know, offshore you, you're basically so self-sufficient. We have a full medical kit with all the medications that you think you might need. So painkillers, morphine, uh, antibiotics. Uh, and he also gave us a prescription for diazepam. And I'm like, well, what is diazepam he's like oh it's the it's the generic prescription for uh valium pretty much he's like if anybody ever starts to freak out and you feel like you might need to tie them to the mast just give them one or two of these and you know it'll just take their anxiety away and they'll just sort of chill out and zone out so it kind of it's an interesting thing to think about but people can lose it but so far we've been pretty lucky 
Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Mason. If you don't know, Kurt is the former host of Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt, I heard you had a little story for us. Okay, true story. A couple of years ago, I decided it was finally time to get just the right ski for me. But ski technology changes so quickly, and I really didn't know what I needed, so I just went to Powder 7, and I told them my skier ability, how I wanted the ski to perform in the pow and on the corduroy and in the bumps, and they pointed at a ski in the wall and said, I think this is the one for you. Of course, they showed me several others and told me how they would differ, but in the end, they said, but based on what you said, this is probably the one. I have never had as much fun on a ski as the one that they recommended for me. So if you're going to buy new skis... Why not buy the right ones for you? And to do that, go to Powder 7. They really know what they're talking about. And I also wanted to add, they have pretty much perfected the art of buying skis online too. So even if you're not in the area, they have a very robust website, extremely helpful. And the cool thing too, they do sell a lot of used demo skis. So I know we on the show are always looking for deals. Um, That's a great way to save a little money if uh, budget's tight right now. So definitely check out Powder 7 by going to powder7.com. Again, that's powder7.com. All right, let's jump back into the episode. Hey, man, I mean, Valium, Valium's doing well here on the land. I can't imagine <laughs> up there. So, I mean, yeah, that that's, you're isolated. It it's, can be overwhelming, and you can, yeah, I'm sure, get, get cabin fever. I don't know, know what, what is the... I don't know what the term is out at sea, but similar. You know, you give off, I'm looking at your social media and I watch some videos, of course, before talking and it just gives off this just unbelievable lifestyle of just, you know, laid back and freedom. So I'm really glad you mentioned that, you know, this lifestyle doesn't happen by accident. It takes discipline and it takes hard work. And that's something that, you know, not everyone probably even thinks about. They just think, oh, you're just sailing around the world with this awesome crew of these beautiful places. But it has to take a ton of planning on your end. And like you said, a very strict regimented schedule. Otherwise, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and people often say, you know, you're, you're so lucky to be able to do this. And I'm like, well, you know, luck has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's, you know, if, if you consider luck, it's really a matter of planning and preparation and being smart about what you do. And you can greatly increase your odds of success by doing that. And so you basically can create your own luck, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, has there in- ever been a time where, you know, something did go really wrong or there was a really close call? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, our first uh, season out, as actually, I guess it was our second year sailing, we were in this area of the Solomon Islands, which is, uh, you kind of know where Australia is. Mm-hmm. And then north of Australia or northeast, there's this uh, chain of islands that stretches basically almost all the way from Vanuatu up towards uh, Indonesia. And uh, it's incredible diving because it's uh, World War II. Uh, Basically, I don't know if you've heard of Guadalcanal and Iron Bottom Sound, but there was a gigantic battle between the U.S. and Japanese navies there. And there's just literally, they call it Iron Bottom Sound because there's shipwrecks everywhere. And we have our own uh, dive compressor on board. We've 
done a lot of scuba diving off the boat. And we were there just basically diving all these shipwrecks. Uh, we found this incredible shipwreck. It was in about 150 feet of water uh, where we anchored the boat and the wreck itself was in about 100 feet of water, a little deep for an anchorage, but we decided to go for it. And so we anchored Delos. We put out all of our anchor chain. The weather was beautiful, blue skies, you know, no breeze, nothing. Uh, we were taking turns diving, leaving two of us to watch the boat while two, another two of us dove the shipwreck. And while my brother and his girlfriend were diving the shipwreck, me and our other friend Paul were on the boat. And all of a sudden, this squall just comes up over the island. And it goes from like zero knots to 40 knots. And 40 knots is, I can't remember what it is in miles per hour, but it's like, you know, between 50 and 60 miles per hour of wind. And it's blowing cushions all over the place. It's blowing our gear all over the place. It's like a full-on squall that just comes out of nowhere. And before I can even get back to the boat to start the engine and make sure everything is safe, I look back and the reef that we had anchored in front of is right there. And so the wind had taken us. It had drugged the anchor and pushed us back to this reef. And the second I hit the throttle to put it in gear to try and move the boat away, I, I just sort of like feel this chunk and this smack and this like sickening thud go through the boat. And the back of the boat hits the reef, stops us, and then the wind and the waves take the boat and push her sideways over onto the reef. And so this is pretty much the worst case scenario that you can be in as a sailor because now you're pinned against the reef by you know contrary wind, contrary waves. The coral and the rocks of the reef are smashing against your boat, potentially putting a hole in the boat, which then your boat sinks. And now you're literally like stranded as a castaway on this stupid island in the middle of nowhere and you and your and your home has sunk, right? Um and so, you know, that that was a terrible experience. And, you know, luckily, uh, we kept our heads in the game. And uh, my buddy Paul put on his, his snorkeling mask, and he jumped overboard and basically looked at where the deeper parts of the reef were. And so every time a wave would come and lift us up before it slammed us back down on the reef, I could hit the throttle really hard and use the rudder and our bow thruster to pivot us around like inch by inch by inch until we are finally bow on into the swells. Uh, still smashing down on the reef, but you know at least now our keel was hitting instead of the side of the boat. Uh, and I just gave it full throttle for like minutes and minutes and minutes. And every time a swell hit us and it lifted us up, even a quarter of an inch, we'd move just a tiny bit, tiny bit, tiny bit. And finally, uh, we worked our way off of the reef. We actually ended up doing quite a bit of damage to the boat. There was damage to the keel. There was damage to the rudder, um, but no big holes in the hole, luckily. Uh, as soon as I got off the reef, like I just literally took off and headed out to sea to safety. I left my poor buddy Paul snorkeling on the reef. Meantime, my brother and his girlfriend are still uh, diving on the shipwreck. You know, they come up from their dive to see like, wow, it's now a storm up here. And why is the sailboat like motoring away out into the ocean, leaving us here? And I actually had to leave them 
uh, for almost an hour and a half until the squall had passed and I could then return and, and safely pick him up. So, you know, it was a terrifying experience and one of those times that you, you look back on and you're like, well, we shouldn't have anchored at that place in that deep of water with poor holding with a reef behind us. Like, I would never do that again. And so, you know, you live and you learn through these trials. And we actually ended up having to sail the boat to Australia and take her out of the water and do uh, a few months of work to repair that damage. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was one of those times I, I never want to revisit. Mm. Now, now for a lot of people, that would cause them maybe to want to stop their, stop their journey. Uh, any, any, ever any thoughts like that with, with anything that's gone wrong? Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of times when I've thought like, ah, what the hell am I doing out here? It's like some days are like, you know, it's like just punishment after punishment and defeat after defeat. And, uh, but then you have those good days, those fantastic days, and then it puts everything into perspective. And I guess it's like anything with life, you know, you, you have good days and bad days, days where you hate your job, days where you love your job. And I guess you just got to figure out what, what you want to do with it. You know, I mean, this, the stakes are a little higher, you know, maybe out at sea and your, your home's on the water, um, potentially going to be sunk <laughs> with, with yeah. your friends and family just kind of out in the ocean. That's, that's, inter- that's crazy in a lot of ways, but also you know, what life is all about, you know, when, when you first had this idea and you first went, what, what was the reaction of your friends and family, um, when you first started? or when you decided you wanted to continue versus kind of what is their view on it now? Well, I think at first they thought it was like sort of a phase, you know, like, Mm. Oh, I think he'll probably go do this for like a year something. He'll probably get it out of his system and then he'll come back and like, you know, want to work again. I, my parents were always really supportive. You know, they were like, okay, you know, if that's what you want to go do, go do it, you know, sell your house, who cares, you know, quit your job, go do it. And uh, if you feel like coming back to normal life or that sort of thing again, then you can do that at that, at that time. But, you know, as, as it went on and our friends and family actually began to see what we were up to and the type of life that we were able to live, you know, thanks largely in part to the videos because they can actually see, what we're doing and what our day-to-day life is like, Mm -hmm. then they, they suddenly, they kind of began to understand like why we would do this and why it was special to us and, and why it was meaningful. Um, and then it, it really, it really sort of changed. And, you know, now they're totally, they, they totally understand why we choose to live this sort of a lifestyle. You know, some people want to live by the beach. Some people want to live in the mountains. Some people want to live in the middle of a thriving, throbbing, gigantic city, you know, we have just as much passion for living on the edge of the world at the skirts of civilization in the middle of the ocean. You know, that's sort of our thing. So being out there and on the ocean for 11 years now, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen floating out there? (laughs) Well, uh, we saw these, uh, we were sailing in Indonesia and we were sailing at night and we looked over the boat. It was a pitch black night and we saw these like strange glowing orbs under the boat. 
that were pulsating like all at the same time, just like one second there would be nothing. Have you ever seen like fireflies in a tree and how when they yeah. sort of go off, the whole tree goes poof. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it was kind of like that, but it was under the boat uh, and all around us, and it was just the most insane sight to see and not understand what it was. Later on, we did a little bit of research and found out that, you know, it's it's usually a, a school of very large and bioluminescent jellyfish that can actually have this behavior. So we were literally sailing through a large school uh, of jellyfish that happened to be like, boom, boom, just lighting up. Um, that, that pretty much blew my mind. I'm sure when you first saw it and it passed and you knew that you saw it, until you looked at what it was, I'm sure. I, I, what, what did you think? Like, was that <laughs> extraterrestrial <laughs> or something? Or, you know, I, mean, you, I bet you were just trippy. Yeah, that. And, uh, you know, we've seen just amazing shooting stars that you think, like, when is this thing going to end? You know, it's just lighting up the whole sky. And, <laughs> you know, we, we, were, we were sailing in South Africa and we were convinced that we were seeing ufos we were absolutely convinced that there was flying saucers out there it turned out to be like uh wind farms right you know the the blinking lights reflecting off the rotors in a strange way and we're like oh it's just you know wind turbines not aliens um a little disappointing i wish it was a flight <laughs> well maybe maybe another few years maybe you'll see something finally out there uh, so we've we've had whales come up to the boat so close that like literally you feel like you know that you can smell their their breath when they blow. Uh, schools of dolphins like thousands and thousands deep just surrounding you. Um, yeah, so the nature is quite spectacular, but the the people also, you know, all the characters that you meet in these different islands. We went we once went to an island in the Cook Islands that uh, everybody had the same last name. They're, all their last name was Masters. There was 55 people living on this island. It's the island called Palmerston Atoll. Uh, and the history goes that there was this crazy man took three Polynesian wives and he moved to this island and set up three separate households with the only rules being that you could not marry somebody from within the same household. So literally everybody over the last 150 years has become completely inbred and have married their cousins for, you know, I don't know, probably six or seven generations now, right? Uh, and they, they live in like this strange little society where they write their last name on everything, but they all have the same last name. So I'm not really sure, you know, what in the heck the point of that is. And, you know, they have these interesting rules where if you're a man, you can bring a woman back to the island. But if you're a woman, you cannot bring a man back. And it's, it's actually quite an odd setup, um, but very interesting to see how people can evolve. I can like imagine that. that was an experience. You know, did everyone look similar? Yeah, yeah, they all were pretty similar. I mean, you could definitely tell that there was some inbreeding going on because, unfortunately, you know, the, the people were a little bit smaller in stature. There was some crossed eyes and and things like that. But I mean, they were they were still happy. They were still very gracious and welcoming. They insisted on cooking us three meals a day uh, in their little huts, and um, it was actually a lot of fun. 
to make friends with them. I can't imagine some of the things going on in some of these just thousands upon thousands of little islands around the world. And like you said, what I, what I love what you said before is you can, you can have that tropical experience or you can head to higher, lower uh, latitudes and almost bring the high elevation down to you where you are in these fjords covered in snow and ice and, you know, ice floating in the water that I, I never thought about that but you don't have to climb the mountains to to bring them to you you can kind of just sail to them yeah like you know last year last summer actually we took a trip not on our boat but on a friend's boat up to a place called Svalbard and Svalbard mm. is it's the northernmost island that's habitable in the world it's literally uh if you look at or type it into Google Earth, it's S-V-A-L-B-A-R-D. It's a few thousand miles north of Norway. Uh, it's 600 miles from the North Pole. And we sailed up there, and for uh, about a month, we did a little expedition of just sailing around uh, in cold weather gear, in Arctic conditions, checking out glaciers, looking at polar bears, walruses. Um, and that, that was really eye-opening. It really kind of gave me a, a a yearning to do more high latitude sailing like that because it, it's just it's like another planet you know there's no trees there's no uh greenery it's you know in the middle of the height of summer in july it was uh you know in in fahrenheit it was probably like anywhere from 28 to 30 degrees was the high and then it would get colder uh there's no night it's light for 24 hours a day um, the sun never sets. It just sort of goes in this circle around the sky, which makes for the most amazing time lapses you could ever imagine oh. if you're filming. Yeah, I bet you lost a little bit of that epic tan, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Being in a jacket on the boat was probably pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking three different layers, base layer, mid layer, outer layer. And then if it's really bad weather, then you have like your your foul weather layer. Mm. Um so you're all layered up and, you know, it's amazing where, where you can go in your body if you have the, the right equipment, you know, wow. heater. How has this changed your worldview? Just knowing you, your little, you know, little big boat, but relatively small boat can just take you anywhere, anywhere in this only place we know that life exists. Well, it's, it's pretty much changed my view on everything that I thought used to be important. Um, and, uh, I kind of realize what to me now is important. That's just having the time to enjoy life and with the people around me. And like everything, it's a balance between enjoyment and work, especially that we have the project with the videos. You know, we're it is a lot of work to do those. It's a lot of work to maintain the boat. But you also have this, these periods of downtime where you are in nature and you can enjoy it and you can spend time with the people that you love the most. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to start sailing when our daughter is a couple months old is because now we get to be a family. And I couldn't imagine if I, you know, had a, a job that I went to where I had to leave, you know, my wife and our baby daughter and, you know, for X number of hours a day or something like that. I, I, I just feel so fortunate that I'm able to spend, you know, time with them and, and be able to take them on these adventures and, uh, yeah, that, that's probably the thing I'm looking forward to most now. Exactly. 
Hmm. And I was going to ask, what do you what do you foresee having a baby? How it's going to change what you do and how you do it? I don't know. Maybe you've given it a lot of thought. Maybe you just, maybe you just throw her right in, and she adapts to your <laughs> lifestyle. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I think we'll probably take it a little bit slower. Uh, you know, we we won't be doing any you know massive multi day hikes like we would before when it was just the two of us, or you know, because now we'll be lugging around a baby and some changing clothes and, you know, worry about sun protection and all sorts of things. But, you know, there's actually quite a few boats out there with kids on them. And, you know, they all grow up on board and they're like, you know, little pirates that form a band or a community with other boats in the anchorage. And they all take turns. It's sort of like a community aspect. If you're around other boats of, of raising children and hanging out and everybody's doing homeschooling and, uh, you know, teaching math and science. And you can imagine the amazing geography and history lessons that you can teach your child, uh, sailing around the world. So, um, they often grow up to be very well adjusted, like, uh, and very ahead of their, class, you know, because sometimes kids will want to go back uh, for high school uh, Mm -hmm. and college. And, you know, you think, well, you grew up your entire life on a sailboat. You're probably this strange, maladjusted hermit type child. And it's exactly the opposite, you know, because they spend so much of their time meeting and communicating with people from all different languages and cultures and adults and children and everything in between. They're like, you know, two or three grades ahead of where their peer group would be when they do come back to school. Um, so I, I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. I, I mean, I craved talking to people who had different experiences, you know, as a teenager and in high school. If I would have met someone that grew up on a sailboat, I, it would just, I, my mind would have melted. I wouldn't have been able to even think of a question to ask because that just <laughs> was so far out of anything I had ever even heard of that I, I would have blown my mind. Which you know, talking, you know, they're not going to be weird. They're going to be, they're going to be interesting as hell. Is what they're going to be. <laughs> well, the, the other thing is, you know, the the people that are attracted to sailboats are a very interesting breed. And so, in any given anchorage, if you have like ten or twelve boats you're definitely going to have an airline pilot, a retired airline pilot. You're going to have a retired, you know, physician or surgeon. You're going to have an engineer. You're going to have a, you know, an artist. You're going to have a photographer. There's going to be people from all these amazing walks of life uh, all in one place. And those are the people that are getting together for, you know, sundowners on your boat, sharing a beer, having a glass of wine and just chatting about random things and it, it makes for the most like amazing kind of random eccentric group that you could ever get together and everybody has like the common thread of sailing so you know you can always chat about boats and and that so it's it's pretty cool the only person i ever knew that was that lived a few years on a boat was a retired fireman and he was he was just wasn't a typical fireman i don't know what i mean by that but he was very eccentric let's just put it that way and loved the yep. guy so interesting um, love to hear his stories. Um, man, I really appreciate it. I got one last question. It might be a little sensational, but I had to ask, how big a deal really are pirates? Well, uh, they're quite a big deal in some areas. Like when we were mm. in the Philippines, uh, they literally kidnapped somebody off their boat less than 100 miles from our position. Oh, 
They came up at night. They jumped on board. Uh, they grabbed the man and his wife, and they took him back to uh, the Zamboanga Peninsula in the southern part of the Philippines. And you know, there was they were kidnapping police stations in Malaysia. They were running back and forth smuggling goods. And you know, when you went through there, um, we actually arranged a convoy and a military escort. So we had the Navy and the local police along with us with gunboats literally like circling us. So it it is a real deal, but it's not as common as you think. And the areas that do have pirates are known about. Just like in a city, you know which neighborhoods to avoid if you live there because they have a higher crime rate, right? So the U.S. Navy uh, and a few other navies actually put out a piracy forecast. And so they say, given the number of incidents in this area within the past number of months and the type of boats they have that are known to operate and the given weather, you know, the probability of being attacked by a pirate, which is like literally a guy with an outboard engine and a, a skiff and a machine gun, um, is this. And so you either choose not to go to those areas, or if you do, you plan and you prepare. Uh, we had some friends that decided to go uh, through the, the Red Sea, through the Indian Ocean, which means they have to go between Somalia and Yemen. And they got a group of five boats together. They hired, uh, I think it was four mercenaries from South Africa, and they hired four assault rifles. They put... Uh, a couple guys on each boat and they just loaded up with a bunch of fuel. They just put the pedal down and they just went whoosh, and they had no problems. Um, so, you know, in, in some areas like by uh, uh, Singapore, which is actually one of the most highly pirated waters in the world, we sailed th through there on our own with no problems because those guys are not interested in a sailboat. They want to pirate a oil tanker or a ship full of TVs or something that they can then, you know, trade and, and make money with. So for us, they're not into kidnapping us and trying to ransom us. That's like a different type of, of guy. Um, so yeah, we do consider it, but all in all, like, you know, we've, the, the, the worst thing we've had happen is people coming aboard the boat at night uh, to, to steal from us. And so that's basically like, and you've had that happen. Like, yeah, that's happened to us uh, one, three times. So once in Indonesia, once in the Solomon Islands, and once in Madagascar. And um, yeah, it's pretty much the same kind of MO every time somebody comes up when they think you're sleeping, they come on board, uh, they try and steal whatever they can. One time somebody tried to steal our dinghy. Uh, in Madagascar by cutting it down and then, you know, they go and sell the outboard or whatever, but they're not coming up with machine guns and rocket launchers, right? They're coming up with like, you know, whatever they have and they're basically just opportunistic thieves. Um, and that's, that's what we've seen. Well, each time we wake up, we were able to, you know, scare them off and, and do that. They've gotten away with a few things, but it was, it's sort of like somebody, you, you feel violated just as if somebody were to break into your house and steal something, right? Oh, yeah. Um, 
So it's sort of like that, but it's a little bit scarier because there's a, there's really no 911 to call. There's no police. You're really dependent on yourselves and the people around you to help support. And in one case on the Solomon Islands, when people came on board, they got into our locker, they stole a bunch of dive gear. The boat next to us was doing a night watch. And so they saw it happen. They put their boat in the water. They had a, a pretty large crew. It was a big boat. They chased them down and literally beat the shit out of them with their paddles and got our stuff back. Oh my God. And then brought us our stuff back. And I was like, whoa, okay, thanks guys. Like that was, you know. My um, goodness. It's just a, it's just a world you don't think that much about, <laughs> but it, you know, covers 75% or whatever, 60 something percent of the earth's surface. Yeah, and it's yeah. just so, I don't think about this ever. <laughs> you know, we've, we've also, been anchored in places where we've had locals come up to us uh, and say, you know what, it's okay to be here during the day, but this place is not safe at night, so you should leave before it gets dark. Mm. And what do we do? We leave. You know, we can do that. We appreciate that local advice, and you know, we we've moved to other villages where they say it's not safe here, but you know, we like boats to come here because it's always good to trade. It's good for the economy. They like, you know, tourism in general. And so we had a father and their entire uh, village basically paddling around us in their canoes all night guarding us. So they would each take one hour shifts. They would paddle around the boat with a flashlight to let the other people around know that we were their guests and that we were protected by them and that we were under their care. Uh, and so, you know, you, you actually end up seeing that it's 99.9% of the world is like actually a good place. And the people are friendly, regardless of, of all the tragedies and terrible things that are shown on the news. It's, you know, they're showing that because that's sensational and that's what, what people see. But it's really like 0.1% or less of troublemakers out there that, that happen to make the news. And uh, everybody's really very cool. So that's the good part. <laughs> Absolutely. Any anyone we've ever talked to traveling the world. Sometimes we do interview people based on, you know, a kidnapping experience or story, but that's super rare. And and even they say, you know, that was such a small part of the whole experience that I that nine yeah, we hear it all the time. 99% of people are are wonderful. But yeah, absolutely. Know, for some reason we are attracted to hearing those stories of things going terribly wrong or when people do us wrong. And, um, you know, I'm glad, you know, thanks for being open about that and that it is a concern and something you got to be careful of anywhere you go. I mean, I've, you know, bike touring, you have an encounter with all kinds of people, but it's such a small percentage, like you said. Um, yeah, absolutely. Man. Well, Brian, you know, we're, we're <laughs> we've been talking a while, man. I don't mean to take you from your, from your brand new daughter and, uh, yeah, you're, better, you're, better get back. And yeah. I got some diapers, diapers to change. Oh, sure. absolutely, man. I probably yeah. got one to change too, quick. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> man, this was honestly, I, I didn't know how it was going to go. This was fantastic. Thanks for, um, talking. I hate when it's uh interview that I have to just, um, fill a, a lot of it. This is great. You know, it's a, it's a life that I'm passionate about. And if I can inform people about it and help them to follow their own dreams, whether it be sailing or just at least taking time to stare out the window during your lunch break instead of checking. <laughs> and I'm all for that. But uh, if, if people are interested in the story, you can pretty much just type in SV Delos, that's Sierra Victor Delta 
Echo Lima Oscar Sierra into YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and our stuff should pop up. And uh, yeah, come along and hopefully enjoy the story. Perfect. I was going to ask you how people can follow you, but I, I will link all that in the show notes. And man, thanks for thanks for telling us about your lifestyle. Uh, my this pleasure, awesome. man. And uh, congratulations again. Thanks, and uh, wish wish you all the best. All right, thank you, Brian. Have a good one. Have a good one. All right, bye. Bye. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.